0: Welcome to Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 85th episode. Today, we will talk about India. Our guest is Ila Patnaik, Chief Economist, Aditya Birla Group, an Indian multinational conglomerate that has been in operation for 165 years. Earlier, Ila was a professor at the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy. She has also served as Principal Economic Advisor at the Indian Ministry of Finance. Ila has authored numerous research papers in the field of economics and finance, and recently she did something unusual for an economist. She co-authored a book with a serving union minister of India, Ubandar Yadav. The book is called The Rise of the BJP, The Making of the World's Largest Political Party. Ila Patnaik, welcome to Kopi Time.
1: Thank you, Timon.
0: Pleasure to be here. It's always a delight to speak to you. And delight from my side as well. Uh, you know, we'll talk about the book a bit later. Uh, first, uh, let's go over a couple of issues on the matters of India economy in general. So how are global inflation and interest rate developments affecting India?
1: So uh, currently, primarily through the exchange rate, because every time the U.S. Fed moves, uh, Indian rupee gets hurt, markets worry. Uh, So at the moment, I think, you know, if you're familiar with some of my work on business cycles and the coupling and decoupling of uh, business cycles uh, between the US cycles and the Indian cycles, we typically see that they don't move perfectly in sync. So first, financial variables tend to move, and then later, uh, real variables tend to move. So, you know, currently the US economy is Well, maybe we can say overheating. So India is also doing well. I think later we'll get to see whether... you know, if and when there is a monetary policy induced recession, how that affects India and how we uh, slow down or not slow down and how much. But currently, it's mainly, uh, you know, our, our exports are doing well. And if the and when the Fed hikes rates, and you know, that's the dollar strength primarily. As the dollar is stronger,
0: obviously, there's pressure on the rupee as well.
1: So that's been.
0: So in terms of a broader set of financial market variables like uh, dollar spreads for Indian companies wanting to borrow in hard currency or the other sort of, you know, liquidity indicators, uh, you haven't seen the dollar strength spill over into that?
1: I mean, I think currently uh, we are looking okay. So India is, in fact, one of those uh, uh, the. RBI intervened, the rupee didn't move all that much. But uh, we've also been keeping up with the RBI has been hiking rates, though not as much as the US Fed. And I think currently, in fact, there seems to be a lot of interest in India. There seems to be money coming in and
0: uh, things look uh, pretty good at the moment. It is interesting, because when I look at year-to-date currency movements, The fragile five are nowhere to be seen, whether it is Indonesian rupee or Indian rupee. Uh, They have all outperformed their neighbors in the north. So Korea, Taiwan, Japan's currencies have depreciated sharply. Um, But I sort of worry that as the dollar cycle continues and the depreciation trends become more pronounced among the industrial economies, that it might spill over into you know, emerging market economies. Uh, So looking at the last three months of this year, uh, do you have any concerns on the currency side or you think that India has sufficient buffers in place to deal with any possible turbulence?
1: I would actually be happy to see the RBI allow the rupee to depreciate a bit because that's what will allow the adjustment to happen. So, you know, it will make the rupee a little more competitive if they do allow us to depreciate. So, and I think in the last uh, th- three, four days, three, four trading days, that has happened. So the rupee did, uh, was allowed to move. And, uh, you know, the economy needs an adjustment mechanism and the rupee is the ideal one. I mean, you know, you, you hear all these uh, demands for increasing custom duties, for anti-dumping duties, and because industry is hurting in many ways. And we might think that, okay, Uh, One concern that has been there is that uh, we keep the price of oil low, but then oil is not the only thing whose price remains low. Once you keep the rupees strong, then other Uh, imports come in and then industry starts worrying about their competitiveness so I would think that to let a currency move is actually much 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 better than to pick and choose which industries get uh, protection and which don't and uh, overall I mean I maybe I'm coming from the last uh, you know 20 30 40 years of indian industry when uh, there has often been uh, there have often been policies to pick and choose industries so we don't want that uh, trend to come back and uh, i think india would do better with a more competitive exchange rate so
0: of course, uh, more competitive exchange rate when other currencies are depreciating, it could create some sort of a bigger thy neighbor type spiral. But you are in favor of letting the market decide on that. Uh, but, Ila, what about balance sheet considerations, the risk of you know foreign currency mismatch among certain importers or the, the substantial pickup in U.S. dollar borrowing in recent years? Do those indicators show any signs of concern from your side?
1: Not really, not really, no, no, not not this time around. So last time around there were concerns, but this time around, you know, if you look at the last two years, corporate balance sheets have improved. And in fact, bank balance sheets have improved. So banks, domestic banks are there ready out to lend to Indian. Uh, companies when they want to borrow, uh, the concern about unhedged foreign currency exposure is not all that much because uh, companies have also learned in this last few years that uh, you know when there is trouble around the corner, you can if you have a natural hedge, then you take on uh, currency exposure. Of course, there may be a couple of companies uh, which may have gone taken more exposure, but broadly. Uh, this is not a time when uh, we are worrying as much about uh, that uh, about about financial stability concerns arising out of unhedged dollar borrowing. That we've not actually actually the last two years have seen a lot of deleveraging. Uh, So it's not as if Indian companies have been borrowing away and investing and growing and the entire pandemic period was one where they deleveraged. So that's not a primary concern, which is... Exactly why I am balancing it out and saying that maybe a time to let the rupee uh, move and to let it depreciate. I mean, the there is pressure. The pressure is already there, and uh, it may not make a lot of sense to resist that pressure, which is what RBI has been seen to be doing. So, uh, I think it's overall, balancing both things out, it's good if we depreciate with the right. market with the market i mean i'm certainly not saying that uh, you know we try to push it into depreciation but if there is pressure uh, we don't keep losing reserves and trying to keep the rupee strong
0: right right uh you know elai I've, I've been talking to you about exchange rate issues for a long time so i know exactly where you're coming from in that regard and it's good to hear that you feel that these uh vulnerability metrics uh, have gone in the right direction since the taper tantrum days of 2013 um you touched a bit on the pandemic i that's exactly where i wanted to go with my next question um from a policy environment perspective i mean how do you assess the indian government's policy response over these two very challenging pandemic years
1: so i think we were very sensible uh in the be- at the beginning of the. The pandemic, there was a lot of pressure on the Indian government to start spending more. In fact, many many, uh, economists said, uh, especially uh, those in the West, said that uh, India should print money. And do 10% of uh, deficit as, uh, you know, do transfers up to 10% of uh, GDP. So deficit, the fiscal deficit could be allowed to go up to 10% or maybe even more. Now, all that was, uh, did appear to be very attractive at that time because, you know, you thought the world was going to end and this was just it. And if we save it now, then we are done. And that it's almost as if, there was only going to be one wave of COVID and then you had to just save the world. Now, the government did not take that advice. What the government did was that it... Tried to do uh, structural reforms. So you, you know, you're familiar with that Atmanirbhar package that uh, for five days the finance minister announced various kinds of reforms. Some went through, some didn't go through, tried to give uh, credit support, tried to give many, uh, food uh, directly to households, but essentially not do the kind of fiscal transfers which uh, some of the countries, uh, some other countries like the US did and by not doing that today we are not suffering the kind of demand side inflationary pressures the large uh, you know households with the, households having withdrawn from the market the uh, labor market the kind of stuff that we are seeing in the us so i we had a far more fiscally prudent sensible uh, fiscal policy now i think the Fundamentally, there are two big reasons why we could do that. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that the others were wrong in doing what they did. They did what they thought was best in their country. But uh, one is that we didn't have that much fiscal space. I mean, you know, once you once you start borrowing uh, too much, you spill over onto the current account or you start borrowing from abroad and nobody's going to lend us in rupees the way the dollar uh, uh, borrowing can increase. So it's we didn't have that much f- fiscal space. But on the other hand, we did have so space to do uh, structural reforms. Okay, we, There are many things where markets still don't function in India, and one could do many things. And I think there's another social uh, aspect of it, which is that when, say, someone in the US loses uh, a job, they lose health insurance, they lose their house, Whereas, you know, the way our society still is, you the biggest crisis was migrants going back home. It was not homelessness. They had homes and they wanted to walk back and, you know, th- they were not allowed to do that. And that was seen as a very, 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 very big crisis. But I'm just saying that in contrast to some economies where people... Uh, would have, uh, you know, gone to hospital, lost all their savings in life because there was just private health care and no uh, government uh, health care. And uh, and I'm talking of the US. Or they would have also become homeless. So uh, given that we have a different kind of society and given that our household balance sheets are very different and family ties are very strong, our crisis was people wanting to walk to go home and us not being allowed to do that, which is a different kind of crisis. So the way it was handled, so one can always, you know, one can always with the benefit of hindsight, criticize if this was not done properly or that was not done properly or what could have been done better. Sure, there are, you know, many things that can be said about that. But I think fundamentally the fact that we did not go overboard on uh, fiscal expenditure. So it was yeah. So that, I think, is what saves us today. And we are we are seeing far more macroeconomic stability post the pandemic in India. And therefore, India remains a fundamentally attractive destination. That which would not have been the case had we gone overboard on our fiscal.
0: Uh, I'll talk a bit about with you later on about the informal sector in India and whether there was some scarring around the pandemic. But I, I want to talk about something else before that, since we are just talking in terms of policy response uh, with respect to the pandemic. Um, the government did deliver some of the emergency measures through the digital route and through some of the new modes of delivery. And as you know, there's been a lot of talk around the world about the pandemic hastening digital adoption. Uh, so talk about that in the context of India. I mean, how fundamental has been that transformation over the last few years?
1: I mean, it's, it's staggering, actually. So we built uh, when when uh, the system was built, the UPI, uh, the you know payment systems were built. When Aadhaar was built, uh, when the jandhan mo- accounts were opened, where you know everybody, you the um, financial inclusion or bank accounts uh, were about. About 50% people had bank accounts in 2014. So when all that was done, it was not done with the objective of... what we would do during the pandemic, obviously, because nobody knew about the pandemic. And it was done either for, you know, financial inclusion or uh, extend, uh, it suddenly uh, increased during uh, post-demonetization or it was made popular by, you know, giving uh, creating interoperability between different payment systems. And that was like, you know, that was just done because it was good Good economics, good principles, good regulatory principles, preventing monopolies. And so you bring about interoperability. I mean, interoperability was so important that when we did it, I can, you know, because we were all part of the ministry and we were working on it, we did not understand how important this is. it is going to be to save millions of lives and livelihoods, which it happened to do. During the pandemic, because now here, you know, there was a time when uh, there was no way one could have gone out to the market, paid somebody to do something. One would just pay online, and uh, and things would move. And it was just apps. The to, even today, you see that today behavior has shifted. So. When people go out, they use uh, the they use
0: digital payments, and they it's just it's a different kind as if it's a different country. Uh, Ila, there is some data that show that India's informal sector has been struggling under pressure to formalize. So this is independent of the pandemic, and but of course, the pandemic also brought in its share of challenges for the uh, informal side of the economy. Uh, So I think some of the stuff that we talk about in terms of the positive growth momentum, probably largely covers uh, the the activity in the formal sector. Uh, Talk a little bit about where the informal sector stands.
1: The informal sector, uh, there's a very large part of India that is very low productive. And when the GST was introduced, actually, that is the turning point. Because you think of somebody who's, uh, let's say, selling uh, vegetables or uh, even a carpenter. If their value added is less than, uh, let's say, a, uh, a carpenter who makes furniture. If his value added, he was in the informal sector, if his value added was less than uh, 12%. And if 12% was the GST rate, then he had to completely, he just, it made no sense to continue to uh, even s- continue his business. If he was better off selling his business, shutting that down, investing money, uh, even putting money in a bank, in a savings account, or investing it uh, in the stock market. So what happened uh, in for the informal sector actually started much before, uh, started five or six years ago, when the GST was introduced. Now, was it good, was it bad? I think all economies are always trying to move towards reallocating resources towards more productive businesses and slowly over time to push out uh, less productive businesses. I think the pandemic accelerated that. So maybe some of that uh, would have happened, but it would have happened more slowly. With the pandemic, the informal sector got hit very sharply uh, and the formal sector recovered while the informal sector didn't recover. And so you see that shift happening in favor of the uh, formal sector compared to the informal sector. So, you know, that's that's broadly, you know, it's a picture which is uh, in in some sense, not so bad because this was something that was going to happen but it does feel a little
0: oops we didn't expect it to happen so fast and do we see that manifest in weak consumption dynamic at the low end of the income spectrum see things are picking up for people uh so people
1: are coming back into the labor market investment is picking up now uh there is a lot of skill mismatch that has happened. So uh, the jobs that uh, are being created, thanks to the high growth of the formal sector, are not those that can be filled by the people who lost their jobs. So there, that's and that's pretty clear that you see numbers of. Let's say female labor force participation has dropped sharply. I mean, in India, uh, you know, you, we don't measure unemployment properly. So what we, uh, and we'll continue to, I think, look at things like female labor force participation. Because a lot of the stuff that they might have been doing, low-skilled jobs, uh, the jobs are no longer there. They just drop out. They don't say that they're still searching for a job. So they don't count as uh, uh, search of the labor force and they don't count as being uh, unemployed, but actually they've lost their jobs and they are unemployed, but uh, they can't be absorbed in these uh, high skilled uh, jobs where there are vacancies. So for example, you'll uh, you know, hear about uh, uh, soft- software. Where The IT sector, where people are moonlighting, where one person is doing four jobs, where all kinds of, uh, you know, where uh, wages are extremely high, uh, wage growth is very high. People are happy to just walk out of jobs and quit because then they know that, you know, they just, within a day, they'll find another job. But there is a skill mismatch. So you do see that.
0: And that's a problem. Right, right. Um, now, uh, when I saw you, I think uh, three weeks ago, uh, I was telling you that when you open a physical newspaper in India, you can see every day that uh, the energy sector is expanding, uh, taking advantage of the uh, current geopolitical dynamic and securing you know cheaper energy supply from Russia. But at the same time, you read all these stories about how uh, European or American foreign direct investment is coming to India, part of the China plus one policy. Of course, all of those are facilitated by the improvement in infrastructure as well. So um, walk us through your view on this issue. I mean, does this mean that this coming decade would be the decade of uh, manufacturing-based pickup for India? So uh, let me first
1: start with putting my biases on the table because I Aditya Bhalla group is largely a manufacturing uh, group and we produce things like cement, uh, aluminium, uh, we are into textiles and many, many paints, chemicals, many, many other things. And uh, we see India growing and we see uh, the domestic market growing. We also see... uh, Indian companies getting a bigger share of global markets thanks to China Plus One. So the, ours is a multinational company that also works in uh, Europe and America and we see localization there. So we are more into inputs uh, and so we see uh, companies turning to us compared to China to Uh, compared to China uh, or Chinese companies, even a little bit. So, you know, the share of the market is very, the uh, global market is very big. And, you know, India's share in world trade is very small. So for us, uh, a little more manufacturing is actually going to be very big. So, yes, I do see this coming decade as one in which that sector in which manufacturing will grow. I mean, we've seen services grow very fast in the past, but uh, this increased realization and the government at least trying to put a lot of effort into what can be done to improve uh, logistics, uh, improve infrastructure. And to uh, help manufacturing improve,
0: uh, I, mm, I hope it'll all pay off. Let's expand on that a little bit more. Um, so, of course, you know, as the China Plus One strategy takes place, given India's large population, we are experiencing and will likely continue to experience seeing substantial rise in foreign direct investment. So, to your point that the government is making efforts to provide the right logistics infrastructure, um, what is your sense of the state of human capital and physical infrastructure in India to absorb a very sharp pickup in FDI?
1: See, a lot of the FDI is coming into uh, the domestic market because it is the most promising, most fastest growing domestic market uh, expected to be in the next decade or so. So you see uh e-commerce you see uh, you know you see things people like amazon coming you give uh, there there is uh, interest not merely in what where china would have got uh, so where you know you think of uh, hard infrastructure and manufacturing which where china attracted a lot of foreign capital i think what india is attracting today is a lot of foreign capital in uh, things like, as I said, for example, in e-commerce, which is a which is a uh, which is service sector, right. which is very different from uh, that traditional sort of thinking that that's where money is going to come. I think that we have a huge capacity to absorb that the capital coming in it may or may not come in into large greenfield projects because that's where I think India has had most difficulties. But when it is into m so we are seeing money come in, we are, we are seeing private equity come in. Uh, so the FDI, so I don't know how familiar you are with the, with the FDI definition and how that changed uh, a few years ago, so you know anything over ten percent in a company is pretty much FDI. So because right. the OECD definition used to be uh, more than ten percent in a country, then slowly we also changed that. So you know the FDI flows that are coming in are a lot of private equity, a lot of money coming into companies, buying up companies and in Mnas. So yes, that is. I think we do have the capacity to absorb. uh I mean, but but you do know that I don't think we're going to be very comfortable to have capital flows beyond 3% or so of GDP. So while we do want to attract foreign investment, but ultimately, there it won't be like 10% of GDP or very large numbers. And if you're talking 3%, 4%, we are able
0: to absorb it easily. And that's the total amount, of course. Right. And, and your point of, you know, not, Drawing a line at the three four percent is that that would allow for macroeconomic stability to be maintained, not have overheating issues, not resource misallocation, but still provide foundation for organic strong growth. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. To have to have macro stability. To have, I mean. I would not say that this is where we should remain in the coming decades. This is a number that can increase. But, you know, given our capacities, given our institutional capacities, uh, given uh, the pace at which uh, we have been growing and how comfortable we are with a certain level of rupee depreciation, a certain level of interest rates, you know. So so there is this... uh, um, uh, path dependence that we have. So given that, that's what I would expect.
0: So roughly speaking, in dollar terms, that would be in the range of 55 to 65 billion dollars a year in the coming near, near term years, right? That's the kind of number we have in mind. Um, okay, uh, Ila, uh, for the longest time I've known you, you have been working very, very hard on what is known in India as FSLRC. So for the uh, benefit of the uh, audience here, so this is the uh, Financial Sector Legislative Reforms Commission. You've been a member of that from the very beginning. And I understand that, you know, through these years of, you know, efforts made by you and others, um, we've had some landmark reforms implemented. So would you please share with us that journey that you've had and where you see the financial sector reforms presently?
1: So the journey, first, let me correct you, I was not a member of FSLRC. I was only co-leading the research team that supported FSLRC. So the members were uh, wise uh, senior uh, justices and former governors and so on. So we were the research team. at. Uh, so having said that, let me uh, just... Uh, take a couple of minutes to talk about what is typically the process through which reform happens. And that's very critical to FSLRC and what was done and what will be done uh, in terms of financial sector reforms. So in general, if there's a problem, okay, then people kind of look at governments, uh, banks complain, various regulators complain, various people complain, public complaints, people write about okay, this is a problem. Research gets done, people make some noise. And then, typically, the government sets up a committee. In Particularly in the 2000s, I mean, this, this is something that started in the 1980s, and there used to be all these trade committees. And, uh, you know, Ishar Jajaluwalia uh, would uh, say that, uh, so she was an expert on trade, and she would always say that, Most of what was done in 1991 had already been written in various committees of the uh, government of India. So she and I have a joint paper together where uh, we've kind of outlined each of the things that had been recommended by committee. So you know, whether it was doing away with industrial uh, licensing or uh, trade uh, import licensing, uh, rupee depreciation. So a lot of what was uh, recommended, what was done in 91 under the ages of the IMF and the structural, uh, just the loan and so on, had actually already been recommended by committees. And and that committee process allows for a consensus to develop. Now, uh, coming to financial sector reforms, a number of committees all the way from uh, beginning in the 90s to uh, during the financial crisis. So these were committees on... Uh, You're familiar with the Raghuram Rajan Committee on Banking. Uh, There was a Percy Mystery Committee on Making making Mumbai an International Financial Centre. Then uh, there were various, many Rangarajan committees. There was a Tarapur Committee on Open Capital Account. There was a UK Sinha Committee on uh, Rationalising Capital uh, 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 capital Controls. There were committees on... um, mm -hmm. Uh, The Debt Management Office, uh, Aziz Committee on the Debt Management Office. Now, all of them uh, were saying that something is wrong with the uh, Indian financial system. Uh, There's lack of financial inclusion. Uh, Credit hardly reaches uh, small businesses uh, unless uh, there, there are too many mandates. Uh, there's too much arbitrariness by regulators the regulation making process is broken there are no appeals mechanism other than SEBI had an appeals mechanism but the other regulators didn't have appeal mechanisms in, uh, in you know insurance penetration is barely three percent and is not increasing because of various difficulties and so on so now all of this put together was suggesting that india needs, uh many, many, many reforms. And then it was understood, and that's where we were also part of the research team that was supporting the Department of Economic Analysis at the Ministry of Finance at that time. It was understood that it needs legislative reforms. So you can't just keep tinkering tinkering away at regulations, because regulations are made. Uh, under certain powers that are, that are given to regulators to make those regulations. And reforms are required beyond
0: that. So the government set up the uh, um, uh, landmark uh, efforts you see in, in the pipeline and coming this year or the next. So I think the effort to do the, the, the
1: uh, FRDI, the uh, Resolution Authority, uh, it went up to standing committee, and I think that will come back because, I mean, you do need to, you know, if you allow private banks to come in, you need, do need to have a mechanism where if they fail, any bank fails, then it's an orderly mechanism. And for that, uh, it was just... It went till the last stage. And I always see some murmur uh, somewhere or the other where there is an attempt to bring it back and talk, uh, talk about it. I mean, especially after IBC, which is for non-financial firms primarily. It's been working for uh, the insolvency and uh, bankruptcy code, It's been working for non-financial firms. So after that, there has been this sense that, yes, you do also want to allow banks to have a mechanism through which they can be orderly resolution if they are on the brink of bankruptcy, rather than to just allow, a you know, so we don't, we, we've typically had the RBI buy up, made somebody buy up a bank. Uh, so, you know, you can't keep doing that, especially if you're going to allow more banks to come in or or you can't you don't allow banks to come in. And then you're again in this situation where barely four to six percent of uh, bank credit goes to uh, small uh, companies, which is really not the optimal uh, way to grow for a country.
0: Right. OK, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Yela, let's talk about your book. How did it come out? and how does an economist collaborate with a politician so it was
1: a, a very interesting uh, story after the 2019 election uh, i was i used to be writing columns at the print and i was looking uh, at uh, so why did they why did the BJP win more more seats than expected? So most people had expected them to win, but by fewer seats. And, uh, you know, so I used to write columns where the print and Shekhar Gupta uh, turned around to me and said, Ila, why don't you work on it? And I knew uh, uh, Mr. Bhupendra Yadav, who then was general secretary of the BJP, But on a lot of these standing committees, so for example, for the FRDI bill, he was on the standing committee. He was the chairman of the standing committee in parliament. So I used to be working with, uh, you know, on these bills. And that's why I knew him already. So I turned to him and I asked him to explain to me uh, why, what had happened in the elections. he had always seemed confident that they would get so many seats. And, you know, the, my, uh, my angle, because I'm not, I don't understand too much of politics and I don't follow politics that, uh, I mean, as, as an Indian, of course, we all follow politics, you know, but not um, in great detail. So uh, m- my question was, what was the role that what you did, uh, on the economics, what role did that have to play? And what I found out was that it had a, uh, you know, the welfare schemes, how the party reached out and so on, had a very big role to play. When we started, so we said, okay, let's write. I started writing about it, wrote a couple of columns. Then we decided we write that into a book. And when we started writing that into a book, we realized you can't do that without the history. So, you know, then it's half a story. So then we also worked on the his history. So we had these uh, COVID happened at that time. So I think we also had time when one couldn't travel, one couldn't do other things. I of course used. It was a huge learning opportunity for me to under and I feel that it helps. Uh, You know, looking at the history, and so we look both at the full history and at the recent history in the book, and a lot of people have told me that having read the book, they understand today's politics and BJP's politics, and because BJP is today at the center of Indian politics. So, you know, everything is either BJP or against BJP. So uh, many people feel that uh, it helps them to understand uh, reality today's politics and economics better, as it did for me. So that's how. And then he became minister when the book was going into publication. So
0: he was not a minister at that time. Okay, so talk about this politics of welfare program. I mean, how do you see it working out in India right now? So, uh, see, we had 70
1: odd years or as many as there were till 2014 when uh, we would say, oh, we have all these schemes and the uh, planning commission in the previous 10 years during the UPA period had tried to consolidate the schemes, had tried to reduce leakages, had also initiated the uh, uh, Aadhaar uh, UIDAI, had tried to, you know, either do some things or not do them, but there was no radical Big effort to actually cut out all the mm, corruption and cut out those schemes. Focus on a few and get at least the SDG goals uh, done. You know, because it. I mean, you. You know, you've been fast growing this, that, and the other. Now, I think BJP came into it uh, from two ends. The first, of course, is that. Uh, they uh, realized that growth uh, has to be growth with people's participation. Remember the 24, 2004 election. In the 2004 election, BJP had come in with an India Shining uh, program. And at that time, they thought that, you know, getting growth was enough and realized, and, you know, that's there in our book also, we talk about it, that how the party says that it, they realized that it's not enough to get growth. What you also need to get is growth down to the ma- last man in the uh, mile, last there. that is to the poorest. In the remotest area, you have to get growth. So when they uh, they came in, I'm, I'm saying politically, that was the experience. And here, the effort was that we're going to hit the ground running from day one oh that 2014, the day they come in, it actually start, they start doing all those uh, programs. I think the uh, first thing you, because I was in government at that time, uh, within a month, uh, the jandhan uh, and the decision to open bank accounts for the entire population, Those uh, that decision came from the prime minister. And, it seemed impossible i mean i can i can tell you that many of us would sit there hold our heads in north block and say no we, we won't be able to do this i mean how do you so 50, 70 years for 50% of the population and then he said do it in two months okay just 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 do it just go do it Abhyan chalaiye go into mission mode don't just sit back just do it find ways and go and You know, start at least give people bank accounts. So the the way, the energy with which, just the basics, and what are the basics? Today, bank account is basic, right? The basics are an identity card, me an identity. The Aadhaar identity was required for because it was and Aadhaar, so they were linked together. So that was also done in campaign mode. So when That was being done. First, it didn't feel, one did not realize that that was, these were the foundations for the world's biggest DBT. I mean, what actually got done was that then it wasn't that the government was going to go around, uh, you know, providing gas cylinders to everybody. Most of what has been done is that that infrastructure got created. And on that infrastructure have run very, very big direct benefit schemes where money has flown through to many accounts. So the gas uh, connection, now, if you look at uh, SDG goals, internal air pollution is actually very big. So that air inside the house hurts women and children. And until then, almost nothing had been done about it. Okay? So one big thing that was taken up was the Ujwala scheme. That is the scheme which said we'll provide gas connections, cooking gas connections to every woman. In the country. And when that started getting done, and then it, you know, there's a subsidy which you can, first there was a give it up. So people right. like us who used to be forced to take the subsidy and feel bad about it, no longer needed to take the subsidy. And others, the poor could apply through their adhar and get money into those jandhan accounts, the, their bank accounts for the subsidy. Now, this whole vision was not something which was laid out or what was talked about. So I think part of what has happened is that people uh, saw something happening. They, in, in you know, the one mission after the other, one mission after the other, and they did not see the plan behind all of these. It took three, four, five years when. When they go back in 19, 2019 to the uh, public, that by then people have actually got a lot of well, just just these are just basic amenities of life. These are just, I mean, fundamentally SDG goals. What are they? A house, a toilet, drinking water, electricity, and clean air inside the house. So primarily these were these are the fundamental uh, that, you know, people receive. The one important, uh, I thought that the one important story, which not many people know about, is that when uh, these schemes were being dispersed through the government system and the district administration and so on, the party would... Uh, almost like a social audit, it would approach people and it would ask them, are you getting what you're supposed to get? Okay. And if there were any issues, they would go ahead and solve them. So that created a connect also between the party, because this is these were the objectives of the party to give a better standard of living to the people and of doing it through government. But understanding that there are, you know, rents and corruption and so on. So they managed to go and speak to people. So that's how they connected with them. That's how, you know, and and a lot of those people also became their members and started participating in their activities and supported them in elections. So that was the unique story uh, of the 2014 to 2019 uh, BJP period, Modi administration.
0: Fascinating. Very, very well captured, Ila. So is um, India's future a deeper welfare state? Yeah.
1: I don't know what is a deeper welfare state. So I don't I don't understand the word deeper welfare state. I mean, uh, what we are trying is that uh, if there are people who are uh, not able to, if they're children who can't go to school, uh, or if there are people who are in such remote areas that there are no roads, then roads should be built, some houses should be provided. But if it means that people be, will be encouraged to not work, get unemployment benefits, stay at home, uh, withdraw from the labour force,
0: uh,
1: I don't think that's where we are going. So, what about- I mean, there is a way, you know, where we are very, very far from what we under what at least like for for example what i saw as a student in uh, the uk where a lot of my uh, neighbors were not working and why because they had both housing benefit and unemployment uh, benefit and they would find some way of just showing that they were looking for a job, but they were not really looking for jobs. I don't think that's where we are going. I don't think we are going to be looking at you know uh, transferring income to hundreds and millions, millions crores. I don't think we can even afford it, but I don't think that's
0: the philosophy. The philosophy is not of handouts. Let me restate the question. If today per capita transfer is X, would it be X times 1.1 in real terms five years
1: from now? I'm not sure, uh, maybe maybe a little bit more of transfers or a little bit less. So if uh, when COVID happened, transfers went up, but if we manage to get more investment and in jobs, then I think they'll go down. Because it's more uh, with the intent of, if you have high growth, there are losers. There are there are people who will suffer, and you need to provide a social security, uh, uh, you know, a cushion to them, so that they don't uh, fall off completely. I mean, so this is not not a place where if there are big shocks that people would be left completely on their own. That's not this society. It's a society where, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just that, uh, you know, in the beginning also, as I said, that it's not that one gave 6% uh, of uh, GDP to households, even at the worst time when COVID hit. That is not what was done. I mean, other efforts efforts were made to allow people to stay alive, maybe just giving them food. Uh, maybe a grain actually at you know not even food. What was given was uh, wheat. So you saw almost everybody washing that wheat because it wasn't all that clean. Washing it then going to mills, getting it ground, and then making it into flour, and then cooking it and eating it. So it's a it's a different system. So I don't want to even judge it by okay five years down the line will we be spending more. I mean, it could be that if money can be spent efficiently, then maybe, yes, it makes sense. So I would prefer public goods, first and foremost. I would wish that it goes into uh, clean air, it goes into roads, it goes into law and order, it goes into judiciary. uh, It goes into just, maybe now we even may need to increase our military spending. But, uh, you know, I wish it goes into public goods. And we don't need to do that much welfare. Yet, I find that the welfare that is done, I mean, if I compare myself to a family that has received welfare, and I try to think of, oops, they should not have got a toilet, you know, and I think of the number of toilets in houses like ours, and you don't even want to go there, you you don't want to go there, you don't want to go there. (laughs) So I'm not sure that we are a welfare state. I think it's, you know, yes, you have to uh, have social safety nets. You want high growth.
0: You want people to take risks. You have to have social safety nets. Absolutely. Uh, Ila. finally, in your view, and this is a very big picture question, what is India's promise over the next decade and the caveats? How can that promise go unfulfilled? So... uh, I think our biggest
1: strength is the youth, is the uh, demographic dividend. Okay, That is India's biggest strength. One, it gives us a big market. Indian market because everyone is doing something and therefore adding value and therefore our GDP is going to grow. So we're going to have a big market. We're also going to be able to participate in uh, production in the in global production more than anybody else because of sheer numbers. We are going to be the youngest country in the world 50% people will be in their working age population i mean compare that to all you know the kind of declines that you are seeing everywhere you're seeing china europe uh, japan of course countries like the us and australia which are not seeing a decline is because of immigration and but a lot of the other countries are in a difficult position and that is going to be our biggest strength what is it that uh, where can things go wrong? I mean, you know, and we want this population to be educated, to be healthy, to be, uh, to just to be able to contribute. We want uh, if we are unable to create an environment uh, where entrepreneurship is uh, valued, where people can take risks, where people can uh, have both the ability and So they should be capable of taking risks. So they should have received uh, education. They should have got some skills. And they should also be in an environment where that's something that they can do. So we are a democracy. We uh, are, I think that's another very big strength. So if we get governments that don't do so well, they don't stay for long okay, 10 years, and then, you know, someone pushes them out. So governments know that they have to respond to all these young people who are looking towards them to create the right environment. But yes, of course, there's always a risk that that's not done properly. And then um, that would be very sad.
0: Very good. That was excellent. Uh, Ila, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks to our listeners as well. Copy uh, Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. Copytime is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 85 episodes of the podcast are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.